Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is The Age of Ecology on Ideas. Ecology is not a luxury of the rich. Ecology is the very basis of life, whether you're rich or poor. I think that message is coming through more and more these days. The greed indeed is slowly being supplanted with the my God, there are other sentient beings than ourselves out there. Maybe we should pay attention to them. And that's good news in this particular year, I think. John Todd calls himself an ecological designer. He believes that the future of civilization lies in living machines, assemblies of organisms that do the work now done by polluting mechanical machines. In a recent article about this concept, he recalls an event from many years ago that planted the idea of living machines in his mind. He and his friend, Bill McClowney, were poking around in the small upland streams of Costa Rica. They came across a species of large fish living in streams that seemed to lack sufficient food to sustain a species so large. They then discovered that these fish were capable of digesting the hard, seemingly inedible fruits that fell into the stream. Closer investigation of their anatomy revealed terrifying-looking teeth capable of shredding hard materials and a long serpentine intestine that was able to digest tough materials. It dawned on me then, he wrote, that the world is a vast repository of unappreciated or unknown biological strategies that have immense importance for humans if we could develop a science of integrating the stories embedded in nature into the basic systems that sustain us. Using ecology as the basis of design has been Todd's life work. Like Shakespeare's banished duke in the forest of Arden, he has found tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. He began his work in the late 60s as a founder of the New Alchemy Institute, a pioneer in ecological technologies. Today, he directs the Center for the Protection and Restoration of Waters, dedicated to using ecological knowledge to solve the problems of water pollution and toxic waste disposal. Tonight, in the fifth program of our series on the age of ecology, we present a profile of John Todd. Our series is written and presented by David Cayley. Harwich, Massachusetts, May 1st, 1990. It's a festive occasion. While a steel band plays in the background, the citizens of Harwich circulate amongst large, translucent, cylindrical tanks full of algae, snails, fish, and numerous plants. The tanks contain septage, the toxic, highly concentrated output of septic tanks. But there's no smell, and the building under its gossamer greenhouse roof is bright, airy, and vibrant with life. The occasion is the opening of the Harwich Solar Aquatics Septage Treatment Facility. Today reflects the combined efforts of many who too envision an environmentally responsible Harwich. As environmental leaders, we are the sustainers of Earth's precious resources. We did not inherit the land from our ancestors. We borrowed it for our children. Thus, we acknowledge here today a, that we are now a part of the solution to clean Howitch's septage waste with this dedication of our solar aquatics greenhouse. It's a prototype 
but it's a milestone for each member of our community. Thank you, Dr. Todd, and all those associated with guiding us to this moment. You share our vision for the future. The new plant is located in a place only a seagull could love, the back end of the Harwich dump. It's the work of John Todd and his associates, the second such facility they've now completed. Its purpose, as Todd told the opening day crowd, is to treat a type of waste that's difficult to treat with chemical and mechanical technologies, septage. This particular sludge is extremely concentrated. It's some 30 to 100 times more concentrated than ordinary sewage. So it's very, very difficult to treat. This material also has in it, because of our, our bad household practices, a number of heavy metals and toxic materials, which are in themselves carcinogens. So the idea here is to, without the use of hazardous chemicals in the treatment process, to purify these compounds try and break up these carcinogens that get into our water using organisms that have this capability and to try and shunt out of the water stream metals using organisms which have this particular talent. And so inside this building is probably over a, a thousand species of different kinds of organisms, each of which are working in a constellation to accomplish a task that no single one or small group of organisms could ever do. And that's the reason why it's called ecological engineering. Ecological engineering is really bringing together organisms from the wild and putting them into a new contained environment to w do some of the work for society. In the case here, the work is purifying the wastes. So in a sense, what ecological engineering and solar aquatics really is, is miniaturizing in a highlight environment the processes that take place naturally in lakes and streams and do so under controlled conditions so that we can in fact affect something in a matter of days, say 10 days here, that would normally take months in the wild. And I think with that I'd just like to welcome you all and say thanks to all of you, there are too many to, to single out, who've made all of this possible. Thank you very much. The town of Harwich is on Cape Cod, which is essentially a big sandbar extending off the coast of Massachusetts, south of Boston, like a crooked finger. There are a few sewer systems on the Cape, which means that most wastes are hauled to the town dumps in tank trucks, called honey wagons, and then dumped into holding ponds or septage lagoons. Below these ponds is the large lens of groundwater, which is the Cape's water supply. Between them, only the Cape's quick-draining, sandy soils. The problem is obvious. But now Harwich has a solution. It's a result of the town's own political initiative, and this is what is most gratifying to John Todd. He's been engineering elegant, ecological solutions to contemporary problems for 20 years. Now, local communities are starting to get interested. The road to the Harwich dump began in the late 60s, when Todd, his wife and colleague Nancy, and biologist Bill McClarney started the New Alchemy Institute. Medieval alchemy was the precursor of modern science. New alchemy was to be the harbinger of a new science. I would say in many respects it was quite a 60-ish thing in the sense that Nancy and Bill McClarney and 
myself, had a range of concerns, everything from the ecological devastation resulting from things like pesticides and abuse of land, that kind of thing. Our concern with the way science, in the broadest sense, was going, where so much of its talent, money, and energy was going into weaponry, and a broader sense of inequities, both biological, ecological, and human in the world. And in a very sort of quixotic, but certainly well-intended attempt to somehow see if that we could create a science and a practice of earth stewardship, a way in which we could try and redirect scientific activity in the broadest sense, and yet apply, in the literal sense, ecological knowledge to a wide range of human problems. We believe then, and I still do now, that inherent in the, the world's um, modern knowledge is the bits and pieces that could create high culture living in harmony with the planet whereas now we have high culture out of harmony with the planet. And this was what New Alchemy was set up to do, to explore these, in the broadest sense, questions of a new kind of science of stewardship and a practice of stewardship. So we're certainly of our time, but in many ways I think the questions that we can, were concerned with then are the same ones that people should be concerned with today. I don't think that's changed. That was the same time at which the word ecology began to come into general use and become a kind of metaphor, at times almost a manifesto, while remaining at the same time a science with aspirations to scientific rigor, suffering, as Paul Ehrlich said in an article I happened to look up the other day from Physics Envy, Anyway, I wanted to propose that to you as a subject, this, this question of the ambivalence of, of ecology. Well, I, I really love the ambivalence because I was happily in both camps. First of all, uh, I was trained in straight behavioral ecology with one of the finest ecologists of the time, Marston Bates. And at the same time, I was working with what really were hippie homesteaders who had decided to turn their back on the crass materialistic culture of their parents and head off into the wilderness. Only when they got in the wilderness, they discovered they didn't know what to do or how to do it. So I, we all became kind of the consultants to them, so to speak. But it, I used to laugh because I would go to scientific meetings and watch the scientific ecologist kind of start to crawl when the ecologists in the social, political, and behavioral sense would arrive in the room. They were very nervous, and very few people could cross back and forth between the boundaries. The relations between scientific and philosophical ecologists have fluctuated over the years, but John Todd has always kept his passport and his desire to straddle that boundary. New alchemy blended science, social vision, and technical ingenuity. It began in Southern California in the late 60s and was relocated to Cape Cod, where it still prospers, in 1970. 
There, the Todds and their colleagues began to pose the questions that would eventually produce a whole new family of technologies. One of the first questions we asked was, how could we, in a very small space, using renewable sources of energy and ecological cycles, produce the food needs of a small group of people? And we began to immediately, in order just to accomplish in a small space those ends, we had to immediately develop integrated systems. And so we had, for example, inside a small solar greenhouse-like structure, a pond. The pond was in that structure in order to absorb enough radiant energy so we didn't have to heat it with fossil fuels, much the way the ocean provides the climate for planet Earth. We did the same thing. With that body of water, which was, again, just like here in this house, which is provide the thermal storage and the thermal buffer, we began to use that water column for aquaculture. And we basically, that work married ancient Chinese methods of polyculture, which we got from the Orient, with modern ecological knowledge combined with the idea of introducing a lot of light. And out of that grew the whole area of work called the solar aquatic aquaculture. Uh, in some cases, on the surface of the water, we would be growing foods. To do that, we began to study the ancient Mayan chinampa, or floating agriculture, and began to sort of bring that into the, our thinking. And then, in order, because we were growing fish in this small space, we couldn't use any agricultural poison kill a fish. So we had to find ecological methods of pest control. For example, we had to look at predator-prey relations, a subject dear to the heart of academic ecology, and find those beneficial organisms to fit in our small habitats. And then we began to start working with wind energy for moving water providing electricity for a whole variety of things, and then began to start out of that designing systems based on pulses. For example, wind doesn't blow all the time, so if you have a fish farm powered by a windmill, you have to design it so that it can cope with natural pulses, which is the opposite to the Western mechanistic point of view, which is to just socket to it with continuous source of electricity and main a steady-state system we decided that working with pulses might be beneficial. And so we started to study pulse-like environments, like a tidal marsh, and asked the marshes, and now what are you doing? And how do you do it? We want to do it too. And that knowledge from mangroves and tidal marshes and things like that became incorporated into the thinking. Out of this early research came a new type of building called a bio-shelter a building capable of regulating its own climate, producing food, and recycling its own wastes. Both John and Nancy Todd were born and grew up in Canada, though they've made their lives and careers in the U.S., and they managed to convince the Canadian government to support the building of a bio-shelter at Cape Spry, Prince Edward Island. The Prince Edward Island Ark, as it was known, was inaugurated by Pierre Trudeau in 1976. As an experimental design, it was a success. As a place to live, it was a little before its time, and the Canadian government eventually withdrew its support. Todd, meanwhile, 
continued to expand his field of interest, spending time in Costa Rica, where Bill McClarney had established a new alchemy offshoot, and traveling in Asia. One of the things which was important to me was to go and study parts of the world that had been farmed continuously for millennia. And there, you would say, human beings had been doing something right. Now, in the West, farming for centuries is considered a long time. You know, before the soils erode and the trees are all cut down and people have to abandon it and then let it regenerate. The whole history of Europe has several of these phases of internal colonization. And in North America, we're seeing a repeating of the pattern. But in near Bandung, in Java, in Indonesia, I was able to look fairly carefully at, um, at a farming systems that had lasted for thousands of years and fertility had been increased, certainly sustained and possibly increased. And I found some fascinating things. But the real news in it was there was an extraordinary balance between water farming and tree farming and grains and vegetables. No one was allowed to dominate. And in those parts of the world where the ponds fed the soils, provided nutrients and fed the soils, and the trees protected the upper reaches, these are, these I guess in ancient times were probably wild trees, now they're economic trees, and useful to the residents of the area. They become mutually, vertically integrated, horizontally integrated, mutually reinforcing type of agriculture. As John Todd's work progressed, his attention turned increasingly towards the third world. Faced there with devastated economies and environments, he began to see applied ecology as the only real alternative to the ruinous type of development which hooks poor countries on manipulated flows of capital and technology. Ecology offered a way of putting people's fates back into their own hands. Only a very small percentage of humanity has access to capital. And the only substitute we have for capital or hardware, which capital can acquire, is information. It becomes a universal currency. It's the key to creating equity throughout the planet. If we're really interested in helping the third world, it won't be through the importation of technologies. It'll be through the, some kind of partnership in finding the appropriate information to a given context. And most of that information is going to be biological or ecological. An instance of what Todd is talking about occurred in the Seychelles in the early 1980s. There he was able to solve a problem threatening an entire island community by applying information originally reported in Russia. A couple of Russians had studied a process in which they had observed that ponds could be found on top of rubble mound hillocks. They said, how could this be? I mean, water should just drain right out of there. And they discovered a process which occurs in nature, which they called glay formation, G-L-E-Y. And basically what happens in nature is if carbon and nitrogen is present in a, in a hollow, and somehow oxygen over time gets driven out, so it's an anaerobic environment, this biological plastic forms. So I was in the Seychelles in the middle of the Indian Ocean, visiting a coral island which was threatened. The 
hundred or so people were going to have to leave the island because their source of fresh water, which was a lens under the island, was being used up and salt water was invading. This process happens in islands and coastal regions all over the world. But it's particularly acute on coral islands because they have no ability to, coral sand has no ability to hold moisture. And so I happen to be in the particular time frame of a disaster. So we asked ourselves, that knowledge from those bogs in Russia, could it work in quick time in the middle of the Indian Ocean? So we dug a small lake and um, we looked around for the fiber and carbon that we needed to simulate this Russian process that occurs. Who knows how often in nature and how long it takes, we didn't have a clue. But anyway, we lined this lake with fiber of the coconut husks, which were a byproduct of the industry of the islands, which was to make copra, or the meat of the coconut, which they shipped to Pakistan. And then we went around and looked in the understory of the island for the nitrogen we needed. And we, what we found primarily was a wild type of papaya. We cut the branches, the whole, the whole shrub, and the, even the fruit, which also has the active enzymes, and we put a six-inch layer of papaya. And then the one thing left to do was to drive the oxygen out, and so we did that by putting another six-inch layer of coral sand and tamping it, rolling it down to make sure we drove the oxygen out. Then we took some of the available groundwater to fill it up just enough to cover the bottom, and then a couple of weeks later the monsoon rains came, and lo and behold, nature made a biological sealant. It, the rains came and there is a lake sitting in the middle of this island, allowing the people to stay there that wouldn't otherwise stay there. And um, it's also acting as an ecological magnet. Uh, I understand that Sir Peter Scott visited the island um, about a year after we did the experiment and there were birds on their way from the steppes to Asia to Africa that were landing there that never land on coral islands somehow attracted to the source of fresh surface fresh water. So that's an example of knowledge by studying the wasted places and finding ecological proceeds that counterbalance the natural tendency to make a place a wasted place. And using that knowledge in, an, in a sense to serve a human community made a fundamental difference. When I first interviewed John Todd in 1981, he described for me a vision of what he called a biological hope ship. The ship would carry the biological materials needed to restore shattered ecologies, or even, as in the Seychelles, create altogether new ecologies. She was to be called the Margaret Mead, after the late anthropologist who had been Todd's friend and mentor, and was to be a great sailing ship, inaugurating a new age of sail, he wanted to combine his passions for farming and sailing, he said, and sail a farm around the world. It was a grand vision, but Todd had trouble finding investors for his sailing symbols of the age of ecology. Eventually, he settled for something more modest, a sail-powered fishing boat. By this time, the Todds had left the new Alchemy Institute and started a new organization called Ocean Arcs International. Their first project, was stimulated by the plight of third-world coastal fishermen. We were aware, both through direct observation and through FAO, United Nations reports, 
that literally millions of fishermen in the last few years have been unable to fish, that they no longer have the fuel for their outboards, the capital for their gear or what have you, and that this is a worldwide phenomenon that coastal communities are, are in really tough shape. And if you analyze why they're in tough shape, it's because their country's economies have lost their buying power. Their currencies have become worthless. There are very few hard currencies in the world. We're so used to being able to take a dollar and go anywhere with it. For example, I'll give you an example of one country that I've had direct experience is in Guyana, in South America, and a Guyanese dollar won't buy you anything. And what happens when these currencies go soft is that the infrastructure disappears. Mr. Yamaha outboard motor pulls out. The local distributor can't, doesn't have a hard currency, so he can't buy it. The oil importers don't want to import oil because no one's going to pay for it with anything they can. So what happens is the economies come unglued. We saw this happening all over the place at terrifying rate. And so one immediately says, well, they could go back to the old ways. Uh, they could build traditional boats and, and do it the way they did it a generation earlier. That argument breaks down when you discover that the old ways involve boats being made of teaks and mahogany and rot-resistant woods. They'd all been cut down to pay for the outboard motors and the, the steel boats and everything else. Their trees ain't there so that their biological capital had been used up. So I started to ask the question, would it be possible to build a boat that could be powered by the wind, that could be built primarily out of fast-growing, soil-restoring weed trees, if you will, that would be as fast as the motorboats they were intended to replace, that would have the most advanced aerodynamic and hydrodynamic thinking could we take the information of a high-performance aircraft and speedboat and what have you and apply that to the needs of artisanal fishermen? The answer to all of these questions turned out to be yes. With the help of a prominent naval architect named Dick Newick, Ocean Arcs came up with a vessel which they called an Ocean Pickup, a one-and-a-half-ton trimaran. A prototype called the Edith Muma was built in Dick Newick's boatyard on Cape Cod and launched with great fanfare in November of 1982. Dean James Morton of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York gave a revised version of the traditional Anglican prayer for the launching of ships. The champagne was gently poured, not broken, over the hull. The Paul Winter consort played Amazing Grace. And shortly afterwards, the three-hulled Edith Muma set sail for Guyana. The Guyanese fishermen were skeptical but eventually impressed. One of the funny things that happened in Guyana that we used to, we had a little radio on board that nobody did, nobody knew that we had all this fancy cop equipment, like radio receivers and all kinds of stuff for the scientific work. And um, we would sail into Georgetown. We hear the trawler captains and one trawler captain, uh, you know, as he's saying, that mon, that three-wing thing ain't worthless. And the other guy saying, yeah, man, I'd like to see you take that tub of yours all the way to New York. 
<laughs> and they'd be arguing back and forth about the merits of it. We'd be sitting there listening on their frequency. Then occasionally we would be sailing in, and the trawlers would try and catch us. But with the, in the trades, we could sustain for sustainable periods of time, go faster, and listening to them <laughs> laughing at each other, say, Jesus sent to Georgetown, <laughs> telling each other to put a little bit more power to it, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> Thank God it was a, um, the shrimpers were a, a national company because they were burning fuel like crazy to stay up with us. It was satisfying. The fishermen who sailed with Todd and his crew also liked the ocean pickup's performance. One offered to buy her the first day out. The boat was designed to be manufactured on a small scale out of mainly local materials, but it still required some local investment, and that was where things broke down. There was a lot of interest in, in Guyana in building a large fleet of several hundred of these because one thing Guyana does have is marine resources. The financial community was interested in a technology transfer and it looked like a, a real go-ahead. But there were certain sectors, as I understand it, in the government that saw this as a liberatory technology, a liberation technology, if you will, and they didn't want the idea of maybe a thousand fishermen being able to go anywhere they wanted. They didn't like the idea that they could sail up to Trinidad and pick up spare parts for the remaining outboards that were still functioning, or slip down to Suriname to get wheat flour and bring it back, because wheat flour is, was anyway, I guess it still is, illegal. They were perfectly happy to control the movements of that sector of the society at the gas pump. And I was struck by the sort of shadow side of the internal combustion engine, is the ability to control people. And that's how they seem to do it. And so the, the dominant sector in the government, which is, as you know, not a democracy, basically decided that this is not what they wanted. The Edith Muma set sail for Costa Rica, but her problems winning acceptance continued Small is not beautiful, Todd has written about this experience, when it comes to research vessels achieving recognition by the appropriate authorities. Ocean Arcs joined forces with the Marine Research Center at the University of Costa Rica, but cooperation proved difficult. The ocean pickup remains an idea whose time hasn't yet come. There is still no prospect of the boat being manufactured, nor any governmental interest in Todd's larger vision of the ocean pickup as part of an integrated scheme of coastal development. This experience changed his orientation. He still believes that ecological technology is critical for poor countries, but he has concluded that it will have to prove itself in the rich countries first. When I was working in the third world, people asked me, if this is such a good idea, why are you not doing it at home? And so at that point I said, they're telling me something I have to pay attention to. I will go back and do solar aquatics, develop fleets for New England or vessels that would be appropriate to New England, develop architecture that could be used in Canada or United States, and give myself 10 years doing that and get that understood as the way of the future so that one could go to Jakarta and say, my God, Massachusetts already has 22 of those and has 200 more in the works. 
then I will have the credibility. Too often it's said, what are you bringing? Second-class knowledge to the third world? We don't see you doing it at home. And then you get labeled as a do-gooder rather than a person of creative action. One of the first projects that Todd got off the ground was a solar aquatics waste treatment facility for the city of Providence, Rhode Island, not far from his own home on Cape Cod. Like the Harwich facility described earlier, it's a greenhouse structure containing engineered marshes and lines of translucent tanks where an amazing variety of plants, microbes, and marine creatures purify Providence's wastes. Unlike conventional secondary treatment plants, it uses little energy, no hazardous chemicals, and produces no toxic byproducts. It was opened in July of 1989 and has continued in successful operation since. I was there this spring. All right, John, why don't you tour me around here, beginning by telling me just where we are exactly. We're right in the bowels of Providence, Rhode Island, in the center of the most industrial district of the city. Uh, to our immediate east is 63 million gallons of partially treated sewage roaring out into Narragansett Bay. To our immediate north is a dog pound where all the stray animals of the state gather for their last days. And off to the west is a, one of the largest haulers of liquid asphalt and other nice materials in the state. And to our immediate south, overlooking Narragansett Bay, we have a glorious mountain of scrap metal, which is destined to go back to Europe, where they turn it into BMWs. And here? And right in the middle of all this, we have a gossamer-like greenhouse structure, and inside that structure is a water garden. So if you were to walk into it, you would see ginger and flowers and watercress and fish and snails and clams and herbs and spices. And what comes in at one end of the building is raw, untreated industrial sewage from an industrially-based city. And what you see here, the sound of falling water right here, is water leaving the building, which is pure and transformed from that original state. We're now inside the, the first chamber. The raw material sewage is quickly being transformed into these great vats of algae. And then the algae in turn are kept, their numbers are kept in check by these large grazing populations of snails, which you can see here, all these dots over the surface are, are snails, which really are the sheep and the cattle of the aquatic realm and the organic material is, is, is burst up to the surface. The surface is grabbed onto by the roots of these microscopic floating plants here, and in there is where the bacteria reside that do their waste treatment. Uh, and then the snails themselves consume the bacteria that treat the waste and uh, so begin the basis of the food chain. These mountains of foam that you see coming off are the various surfactants and 
waste from restaurants and, and waste from households, the soaps and the various types of things, and they foam up. And in those foams, again, there are algae and, and bacteria and other organisms that also continue to do the treatment process. At the very beginning, um, you can see higher plants floating on the surface. That's a tropical plant, the water hyacinth. And during the summer months here, it is, a, it, it is just a mass of orchid-like flowers. It's the, the contradiction between the treating of waste and the aesthetic is, um, is one that we find very interesting and somewhat ironic. We've now moved into the, the second and largest room inside the solar aquatic waste treatment greenhouse. Basically, this second stage in the treatment process mimics exactly the strategies a salt marsh uses, which is a period of drying and a period of wetting. So that for half of the day in here, the marshes dry out. And that mean that allows air to penetrate down into the system and then the other half of the marsh, they're all in parallel, there are eight of them here. The other half of the system is wet and it is, becomes anaerobic and does one type of purification process. The side over here, which is dry, becomes aerobic and is prepared to do another kind of... And as you can see, this is an eclectic marsh, if there ever was one. We have, we have the umbrella plant, which I think originated in North Africa. We have the eucalyptus, which are from Australia, and we have the, the uh, scurpus, the bulrushes from North America, three or four species. And these are all intertwined in this system to produce a, a polyculture with each plant having different depths and different functions. Some remove organic carcinogens, uh, actually physically break them up. Some of these other plants uh, entrap heavy metals and lock them up uh, rather than allow them and get them out of the water so that they're not re-released into the bay. Now, what we do with these heavy metals varies depending on the plants that they get in. If it's a tree, a long live tree, then we like to concentrate the, we like to find trees that concentrate metals in the stems and roots and, uh, and we can lock up these metals then for centuries or many, many years because they're planted out after they start life in this building to become landscape trees afterwards. And so that's kind of an important side of the story. Others, uh, other plants take up heavy metals like the tiny floating plants and those are composted before they reach hazardous levels in the plant and so that they can be reused on the landscape but the metals levels are low enough that it doesn't cause a, a long-range degradation of the external environment. The third strategy that we use here is, is, uh, is, is unique, and that is uh, because this is an industrial city and the backbone of this city is, in fact, the jewelry industry, what we're attempting to do here is try and find plants which uh, are called hyperaccumulators, and these are plants that actually try and mine specific species of metals out of the water and concentrate them so that they could be reused as, as ore grade. And uh, we have a long-term project to, to try and uh, study um, just this phenomenon and uh, see if we can find metal mining plants that are happy to live in water or in wet 
wet marsh-like environments. Because the sewage you're getting has significant amounts of precious metals in it? Yes, all of the, uh, all of the precious metals are here. I don't think we measure for gold, but we measure for silver, of course, and then there's cadmium and mercury and lead and things like that. It's all in the sewers of the city. Um, and it's, it's very erratic. Sometimes there's very little, and then all of a sudden there'll be a big spike, and that tells us that some one of the factories has done a, a discharge into the into the sewers of the uh, into the sewers of the town. And then, as we go down here, as as we walk toward the final treatment process, the actual diversity of plants and animals increases. So now we start coming into an area where we have crayfish and clams and more and more different species of, of plants. It's a tiny aquatic fern floating here that produces that carpet-like mat. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the ubiquitous watercress in this system, which are um, kind of the workhorses in here. The final stage, which you see right here, is, is uh, um, basically, a, again, an engineered marsh, but it's really a polishing marsh. The idea is to remove the last of the fine particles. And the other thing that's very important in this phase of the process is, is, uh, is to, to have plants in the polishing marshes which are po powerfully antibiotic. And uh, most bulbs are antibiotic and that's one of, have antibiotics and that's one of the reasons why they store so well and don't rot so easily if they're kept relatively dry. And um, so you'll see a fair number of bulb plants in the system. Things like, you know, um, irises and others are, tend to be very good this way. A lot of plants that we use in that way. And then it passes down through the fine crushed gravel filter and then leaves the building as clean water roughly four days after it entered here. After our tour, John Todd and I continued our conversation in the quietest place we could find, the cab of his pickup truck rolling down the windows after each exchange to prevent heat prostration, and then rolling them up again to keep out the noise of the passing trucks. As we sat facing the greenhouse, Todd told me what they had learned from the place so far. The facility we're looking at here can treat the needs of about 150 households. It's roughly 11 meters by 40 meters in length. And if we were to do all of the city of Providence, we're looking at a area of roughly 120 acres, um, something like that. That's comparable to the acreage that is currently used by the city to treat their waste to secondary standards. And this facility is treating to advanced wastewater standards. So when it comes to space, these new light-driven, ecologically-based processes are space competitive. So that the opportunity to treat the whole city in one place is there. But the other side of that coin, which I think is very important, is that because it's beautiful, because it doesn't stink, we now have the opportunity for the first time to disaggregate the problem of waste. So that each neighborhood or each community could have its own facility each neighborhood or community could use its own byproducts, the trees, the, the various flowers and things like that to enhance the environment. So that these facilities could become epicenters for the whole landscaping of areas, including cities. 
So the state of Rhode Island, which is our host for this particular facility, is, is very definitely interested in the whole idea of disaggregating the problem. And the reason is, if anything goes wrong here at this plant, we have somewhere between 60 and 100 million gallons a day going into the Narragansett Bay, one of the great bodies of water in this part of the world. Whereas if each of these were serving a community, there would never be that kind of disaster. So that's the value of this type of ecological engineering, is that it can help disaggregate the problem because it's no longer a foul process that nobody likes to think about it and nobody can afford kind of thing. How about the cost of doing it? We address the issue of cost in two ways. The first is if we're dealing with a very concentrated waste, like septage, which is 30 to 100 times more concentrated than sewage and hard to treat conventionally, then we are far more cost effective than any other technology. We're way out front there. When it comes to sewage, we don't yet know our costs in relation to other facilities. It looks to us as though for the price of an ordinary secondary treatment plant, we can build a advanced wastewater treatment facility. It looks to us as though we are modestly more, modestly more cost effective in the dilute waste or sewage waste area. A final question about yeah. this place. Uh, it strikes me that this uh, uh, knowledge you've spent half a lifetime acquiring must be at play here in terms yes. of the number of, of different things and the number of different jobs they do. Is this a kind of coming to fruition of the knowledge that goes right back to the beginning of new alchemy? There is no question that this is a fruition, a coming of age. I have enough experience with different kinds of organisms and different plants and different animals and the way they work together in concert. And now I've actually reached the point in my life where I can start talking about something quite revolutionary and quite new, and that is the concept of a living machine. And a living machine is in fact an ecologically engineered technology that uses wide varieties of organisms to carry out the work of society. I can see the same kind of knowledge being used to produce foods without any environmental degradation, perhaps, let's say, environmental enhancement. I can see the same kind of living machines to produce fuels for our automobiles. and our. I can see these same kind of types of living machines to regulate our climates, both heating and cooling and air purification. So in the areas of waste, food, fuel, and even architecture, one can begin to see the concept of living machines which are contained in these gossamer-like environments with light penetrating everywhere to function uh, as the workhorses. In a sense, it's for the first time in the history of technology, we're able to actually miniaturize the process of production and recycling. My dream is if this is true, and some of these can be made to last for centuries, unlike mechanical or chemical engines, some of the, some of the simple parts might wear out, but the overall systems can go on forever. They're self-replicating, self-repairing. They have all of the capabilities of, 
of machines, except they have attributes that machines don't have, hence the name living machines. And so I think we're on the threshold of something really fundamental. And carried one step further, in fact, we're even beginning to talk major projects, beginning to talk about the idea in both in Eastern Europe and in, in New York City uh, of actually designing intelligent buildings that carry out all of the support attributes using living machines. And uh, so that we're stepping into a new, new dimension, which is interesting because it's 14 years ago that the arc on Prince Edward Island was finished. And that was the first complete statement of an integrated system. And it was interesting that what we were doing was really totally misunderstood for about 14 years. And now all of a sudden the pieces have come together. Ten years ago, in a book called Tomorrow is Our Permanent Address, John and Nancy Todd drew a distinction between the structure of a system and its coefficients. An automobile is a structure, the fuel efficiency of its engine, a coefficient. Tinkering with coefficients is the easiest and least threatening way to approach environmental problems. Improving the fuel efficiency of cars without challenging the structure of transportation is a good example. Using energy to recycle something that needn't have been produced in the first place would be another. John Todd's eye has always been for structure. He wants to redesign society so its structure resembles the structure of the living world. In living systems, each part is linked to the whole but retains a certain independence. This is what gives the system its resilience and adaptability. Our bodies are a coordinated play of such relatively independent parts. In contemporary social structures, that element of autonomy is missing. Analyze even your household economy, and you'll probably find yourself linked into scores of unstable, ecologically destructive, politically questionable supply lines extending right round the world. Living machines are John Todd's answer, a way of making civilization continuous with nature by designing as nature designs. One of John Todd's inspirations in this work has been the Gaia hypothesis, the idea that the Earth as a whole is self-regulating. Gaia, he thinks, is the framework in which ecological engineering finally makes sense. The whole notion of the Earth as alive is ancient, but the idea of the Earth being alive, when it becomes part of the consciousness of people, then their place on it changes dramatically. And my sense is that economies built on ecology will allow people to live and believe in one system. Whereas now you can believe in Gaia and a single wonderful manifest ecology, but how do you act on that belief? How do you live on that belief? And I think sometime in the future, the sort of the living and believing can come into harmony. And if I didn't think that, then I would probably have very little hope because I'm completely aware of the damaged ecological fabric of the planet. 
And I guess the Gaian thing is coming around at the right time to provide a broad mantle under which people change the values and the way they work and their relationship with other living things, not just with each other. So that's my source of optimism. John, thank you. Thank you. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to part five of The Age of Ecology, a profile of ecologist John Todd. The series continues next Friday evening with a program about the Gaia hypothesis and its implications. Featured will be Jim Lovelock and William Irwin Thompson. Tonight's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Faye McPherson. Technical operations, Lauren Tulk. Producer, Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Ecology, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night.